And uh, let's kneel together and have a word of word of prayer. Father in heaven, we come before you on our knees. We thank you and praise you for your love towards us, for your compassion and your care. And you take care of so many things that we just we don't even think of. Because you, you have mercy upon us and you love us so much. You love us so much that you, you, you let Jesus come to this earth. Become like one of us. Uh, and he willingly did. He laid down all of his uh, kingly robes. Become like one of us for eternity. That's something that's just hard for us to fathom. And so, Father, we thank you and we praise your holy name this day. We praise you for the Sabbath day that we can come and be in your presence and and gain a blessing with each other and and with you in the presence of holy angels. Get a taste of heaven today. And, Father, you've heard the the praises uh, this morning. And uh, you've heard the prayer requests. You know, that... uh, Prayers for our children, Jerry's um, daughter Kelly, who's having some issues, and and uh, um, there's some family issues going on. An attack on a family with uh, within her um, her family, George and Lorraine, and you know who they are and, and the situation there, Lord. And we pray that you will send the angels that excel in strength into that home and remove evil forces. And we know we don't that you do not coerce the will in any way. Uh, but you can, you can clean out some of the, the evil angels, move them out of the way, so that there will be uh, more of a heavenly influence surrounding that home. Uh, Lord, we pray and continue to pray for uh, Wayne, the husband to our friend Dusty Rose, who's dealing with cancer. We pray that you will be with those who are helping uh, in this situation, the doctors, nurses, the, you know, bring the health uh, principles to their minds that uh, that will heal him. Uh, Lord, we we also lift up our dear sister Monica who has had to have knee surgery and may have to have it again. We pray that you guide and direct in that situation and heal her so that she can be an uh, active witness for you, Lord. And be a witness as she goes through this thing as we studied this morning. No matter where we are and what situation we find ourselves in, we can be a testimony to the truth that's found in your word and the truth of your character. We pray that you'll be with her. Um, And again, Father, we've had a discussion here uh, for a few moments over marriage and what's happening in our world. We pray that you'll strengthen the marriage units within the household of faith and all marriages as far as that goes, but in particular the household of faith, Lord, so that we can be the witnesses to the world of what marriage was intended to be and uh, how parents are to behave and train up their children. We pray that that we may be a witness to the world to that. We pray for the teachers, uh, that they will be a witness to students, and that the church will teach uh, what is right, the right principles involved in marriage and parenting. Lord, I pray especially now that you be with me as I bring this word to the congregation. We continue to speak about issues dealing with defining your church and and, uh, and some of the things that uh, are errantly taught, which I'm going to deal with today, I pray that you give me the words to speak. And may they be the truth always, Lord. And may they bring glory to thy name. I pray in the blessed name of Jesus, who's worthy. Amen. 
Uh, I was speaking to someone, um, my good friend Gene down in Florida uh, last week. I was speaking to him, and we were talking about these issues and some of the things. There, there are some objections. In fact, we got on that top the topic because uh, he had called me. I'd sent him a note to have him call me, and he called me, and I was in the middle of studying uh, some common objections or maybe not objections per se, but uh, common misunderstandings that people have about who the church is, that if they would listen to or, or have studied with us through these past several weeks uh, what the Bible and the spirit of prophecy, the Bible and the inspired writings have to say in defining God's church, these wouldn't even be things that would be brought up. Because if you understand the fundamentals that the Bible lays out, the fundamental principles of who and what the church is, you're not going to be deceived by it. You're not going to be deceived by Babylon. See? We have a statement from a prophet that says that the best way to, to deal with error is to present the truth. And that's what I've always tried to do. And in defining God's church, present the truth that's found in God's Word and it should take care of any error that comes up. And so I, I was studying some of these things that are brought up. You know, the ship. Well, who is the ship? If you understand... Uh, um, Bible definition of who the church is, you understand who the ship is. It's not an organization. The organization is not the church. And only the ship, the only ship that is the church is the one that Jesus is the head of. You know. uh, but there's a, there's a misunderstanding of several uh, parables or, or examples that Jesus had given. Uh, you know, the f- foolish... Uh, wise and foolish virgins, the Laodiceans as an example, the wheat and the tares, uh, and many other things. And so, you know, the devil wants to keep you fooled. Do you believe that? The devil wants to keep you fooled. He wants to keep you in a state of indifference or self-righteousness just long enough to be that you'll be sealed in your sins. And friends, I don't want that to happen. If you remain in Babylon, you will partake of the plagues, Period. That's not Pastor Joel speaking. That's the Word of God. I don't want that to happen to me, my family, or you. But the devil, he does this. He, he, he does this in so many different ways to keep you fooled and in a state of indifference. He does it in so many ways, but one of the greatest ways that he fools people is in the definition of who the church is. If we have the wrong definition of the church, then we will seek the wrong organization to become a member of and stay within the wrong organization until it's too late. Do you believe those words? Satan is a master of illusion, friends. He's a master at twisting Scripture. We see it today. We, we're beginning to see this type of thought and mentality in many places within our world, within our government, in this country. Black is white and white is black, they try to tell us. That's the devil, friends. Satan uses Scripture in such a way to settle people into false ideas. Do you believe that? And this is why I've spent a good amount of time in this subject of identifying the body, the church of God. You know, I've entitled this series, This is My Body, Defining God's Church. 
this particular study I've entitled Foolish Laodicean Tears. Foolish Laodicean Tears. Just to kind of recap a little bit, you know what we've what have we learned in the, the past several weeks about the true church? We've learned that it's going to have the nature of Christ, haven't we? For wherever Jesus is, what did we learn? There is his church. If Jesus isn't there, and I'm talking about the Spirit of God, the presence of God. Have you ever heard the term Ichabod? Remember when Jesus left, he left the temple for the last time and he said, Behold, your house is left unto you what? Desolate. What did that mean? That meant God was no longer there. Did they still have the temple? Did they still have the buildings? Did they still have the Sanhedrin? Did the, the people, were people still coming in and worshiping there? Were they still bringing in tithes and offerings? But was it God's church? We learned that God's church will have the nature of Christ because God is there. It will be made up of people who are born again believers. They, they are humanity and divinity combined. They have the Holy Spirit living within their hearts. Now speaking about the church militant, we'll get to it in a moment. We learned that it's a spiritual house. It has Jesus Christ as, as the head. We talked about the ship. He's the captain. If Jesus isn't the captain of the ship... You're on the wrong ship. It'll be of the spiritual seed of Abraham. It's not going to be of the fleshful seed of Ishmael, the carnal heart. Because number one tells us it's made up of born-again believers. See? Not carnally minded. This means that there'll be covenant keeping. We learned that the Sabbath is a sign of the covenant. The church is a light that leads the way to the head, which is Christ. It points to Jesus. It's going to lead you to Jesus. When Saul was on the road to Damascus, he met Jesus face to face, and Jesus pointed him in, put him in connection with who? His church at Damascus. Was it the synagogue at Damascus? No. It was the Christian people in hiding in Damascus. The church of God will have the gifts and bear the fruit of the Holy Spirit. And that includes the testimony of Jesus, which we found is the spirit of prophecy. It's going to have a prophet. We found that it's going to stand upon the foundation of truth. The Bible tells us this. Because Jesus is the truth. And if Jesus presides there, (laughs) that's the foundation. He's the chief cornerstone. But a present, especially present truth, right? Our present truth is what? Who can tell me? What is our message for today? The three angels' messages. The last message is to a dying world before Jesus is to return. The church of God is going to have the faith of Jesus. Righteousness by faith. The church of God is going to keep the law of God, all ten commandments, by faith. It's going to be vibrant. It's going to be healthy. It's going to be living in Christ. It's going to be a true fellowship of believers. Which means it's going to have godly love. It's going to have a unity. They're going to be unified in doctrine. And they're going to be organized for service. Now, in the coming weeks, I'm going to talk off and on about organization. Because it's very important. God is organized. And His people are to be organized for service. 
And friends, we found that this is the true church of God. This is spiritual Israel. And there's a lot written in the writings of the prophet about the church militant, as I mentioned, and the church triumphant. And I'll touch on the difference a bit more as we go along because there are several inaccuracies being taught in our pulpits as to which is which as pertains to our day. The church militant and the church triumphant will have the same, hear me now, they will have the same righteous characteristics, but there is one difference. The church militant will also have tares. Did you hear me? They will also have foolish virgins. Did you hear that? They will also have people who are known as Laodiceans. Did you hear that? They will be in the rank and file of the organization. But are they members of God's church? No. They're in the organization. And so... This is something that, that I, I tell you what, it grieves my heart when I hear professed members of God's church speak boastfully about being the Laodicean church. What do they think they're saying? That's nothing to be proud of. That church gets spewed out of Christ's mouth. I don't want to be spewed out of his mouth. I want to be with Jesus. Don't you? That's the church militant. It has those entities. It does not have open sinners. Or it's not to have open sinners. But see, friends, it's when the church militant is completely cleansed of such and each faithful member has reached the character profession like that of Christ, that it becomes the church triumphant. And that's to be our goal, isn't it? Isn't that what we're to be striving for? Let me share this with you. Christian Education, page 76. The life of Christ was a life charged with a divine message of the love of God, and He longed intensely to impart this love to others in rich measure. Compassion beamed from His countenance, Isn't that something? Compassion beamed from His countenance. Have you ever wondered, how is it that Jesus could walk through a town and people just came out and followed Him? That's because compassion beamed from Him. And His conduct was characterized by grace, humility, truth, and love. Every member of his church militant must manifest the same qualities if he would join the church triumphant. Here's another one. Evangelism, page 707. The work is soon to close. Do you believe that? The members of the church militant who have proved faithful will become the church triumphant. That's speaking on earth, isn't it? Friends, it should be the goal of each one of us to become a member of the church triumphant. And this will be the church that through the grace of Christ has overcome every sin and become like Christ in character. And God's professed church today tells you that that's impossible. Wow. How can you have hope? 
How can you have any kind of hope with that? But what we just read, this church militant that becomes the church triumphant, it'll be the that will be the remnant that overcomes the beast, his image, the number of his name, and his mark. And the hundred and forty four thousand that you read about in Revelation seven, you read about in Revelation fourteen, they symbolically represent the church triumphant. So we want to strive to become a member of the church triumphant. Amen? Now one of the things that I hope to stress repeatedly as we get into our study is that the church militant will, they will deal with sin as God says to deal with it. Do you believe that? The church militant will not encourage or be indifferent to sin, but will disfellowship unrepentant sinners. And this is the key to the three subjects we're going to look at. You see what I'm saying? Does God condone sin? Would God condone sin in His church? Did God condone it in heaven? What makes you think that He would condone it now? Is there some grand exception? Have you ever heard me use that expression? I get people that tell me that somehow there's this grand exception that it wasn't true for anybody else, but it is for the remnant church. There's a grand exception. God doesn't, you know, Sin is sin. No, there's a grand exception. God knows that there's sinful people in here and He's going to take care of it. He does take care of it through His faithful people. It's unbelievable to me. The devil's deceived so many Adventists concerning who the church is and it's taught that there will be sinners, meaning open sinners in Zion, the church, until the harvest or Jesus' second coming. Is that what the Bible teaches? I can't find it anywhere. I mean, my natural heart, friends, tells me, wow, I wish it was that way. Then I could sin and do whatever I wanted and it's excused. I can't find that in the Bible anywhere. Why, if it's excused, why would the Son of God have to shed His blood on a tree? telling you friends that's a bold faced lie from the devil and hopefully we'll discover it in our study again I've entitled this study Foolish Laodicean Tares and we're going to take a look at the parable of the ten virgins the message of the Laodicean church of Revelation 3 and then the parable of the wheat and tares I may go a little long today but this is very important to understand and I'm not going to get into the greatest of detail either we would be here for a long time. We're going to see tremendous parallels, beloved, between the three. And hopefully learn the truth as to these three subjects and the relationship to the church of God, the church militant, and the church triumphant. Now, I, again, I could spend hours on each of these, but I want to dwell upon the character traits of each and their relationship to the church as the Bible describes it. And I encourage you to always study this out for yourselves. Have you ever heard me say otherwise? Because I believe what the Bible says, and it says that we are to work out our own salvation, that we're to study to show ourselves approved. So take what I bring to you and study it out yourself and see if I'm 
I'm bringing the truth to you. And with the aid of the Holy Spirit, He'll lead you to the truth. Isn't that, isn't that right? Can I get an amen? amen? Let's begin with the parable of the ten virgins. Matthew chapter 25 and verse 1. Then shall the kingdom of heaven be likened unto ten virgins, which took their lamps and went forth to meet the bridegroom. And five of them were wise, and five were foolish. They that were foolish took their lamps and took no oil with them. But the wise took oil in their vessels with their lamps. While the bridegroom tarried, they all slumbered and slept. They're going to be awakened here sometime very soon, friends, I'm telling you. And at midnight there was a cry made. Notice again, didn't we study in our Sabbath school this morning, you know, about Paul and the ship, and it was at midnight. Remember that expression? And at midnight there was a cry made, Behold, the bridegroom cometh, go ye out to meet him. Then all those virgins arose and trimmed their lamps. And the foolish said unto the wise, Give us of your oil, for our lamps are gone out. But the wise answered, saying, Not so, lest there be not enough for us and you. But go ye rather to them that sell, and buy for yourselves. And while they went to buy, the bridegroom came, and they that were ready went in with him to the marriage, and the door was left open. The door was removed from its hinges. There was no door. There was a door, wasn't there? And what was it? It was shut. Afterward came also the other virgins, saying, Lord, Lord, open to us. But he answered and said, Verily I say unto you, I know you not. I know you not. Watch therefore, for ye know neither the day nor the hour wherein the Son of Man cometh. Now, as was often the case with parables, you'll find these parables that are related by Jesus to us, this scene was enacted before the eyes of those who were there hearing Him speak it. They actually could see it. From the book, Christ's Object Lessons, page 405. Speaking about this situation here, this parable. She says, Christ was with His disciples. Christ with His disciples is seated upon the Mount of Olives. The sun is set behind the mountains, and the heavens are curtained with the shades of evening. That sounds like a beautiful view, doesn't it? In full view is a dwelling house lighted up brilliantly as if for some festive scene. The light streams from the openings and an expectant company wait around indicating that a marriage procession is soon to appear. In many parts of the east, wedding festivities are held in the evening. The bridegroom goes forth to meet his bride and bring her to his home. By torchlight, get that? By torchlight, the bridal party proceed from her father's house to his own, where a feast is provided for the invited guests. In the scene upon which Christ looks, a company are awaiting the appearance of the bridal party, intending to join the procession. So Jesus is watching this, and he begins to teach the disciples about the kingdom by using this as an example. He says that the kingdom of heaven is likened to these ten virgins. And in speaking about the, the kingdom, the kingdom here, he's essentially describing the church, isn't he? His people that are on earth. And we know that in prophecy that the symbol of God's true church is what? A pure woman. Isn't that right? 
Okay. So Jesus is speaking about the true church, for he's talking about virgins here. And the virgins are awaiting the bridegroom to come, and so this is about the church of God before Jesus returns. This would be the church militant. Notice that the ten young women are virgins. That means they profess to be pure, right? So they represent all of those who profess the pure faith of Jesus. But notice that there are two classes here among these professors of a pure faith. Jesus said that five are what? Wise. And he said five are foolish. All ten are, at this time, in the church militant. But the foolish are not in the spiritual church. You understand? They're not a member of God's church. They're a member of the organization. They're a member of that party. See? All ten are in the church militant, but the foolish are not in the spiritual church that will be saved. For you see, they only profess to be true followers. What's the difference? They didn't bring any oil, right? They didn't bring any oil. Jesus said that all ten virgins had lamps. Didn't He say that? They had lamps. The lamps are usually small. At that time they were... uh, And you can, you know, if you have access to... Bing or Google or whatever, and you you can look up and see some pictures. They're usually some small clay bowls. They contained oil. A lot of times it was olive oil. And it had a wick floating in the oil. And its upper end was held up by the side of the bowl. And they would light that. Now let me ask you a question in this parable. What do you suppose the lamp represents? The lamp. What does the lamp represent? What's God's word say? Psalms 119.105 Thy word is a what? Lamp. Okay? Thy word is a lamp unto my feet and a light unto my path. So the lamp represents what? The word of God. And all ten had the word of God. But five didn't have any oil. So all the virgins had possession of the word of God. And we read that the bridal party proceeds by... Torchlight, remember that? They proceed by torchlight. They travel by the light of God's Word. Now Jesus explained why five were wise and why five were foolish. The wise took their lamps and also oil with their lamps. Right? The foolish took their lamps, but did they take any oil with them? No. Now to the outward appearance... <laughs> That's a whole nother subject, but yeah. They have the word, but not the spirit. Yeah. Now, to the outward appearance, and we talked about that today, didn't we? God looks upon the heart. Wasn't that our scripture reading, right? We look on the outward appearance. To the outward appearance, they all look the same. They were all in the same place, they all were dressed the same. They had the same garments. They had all had lamps. They all professed purity. They were undefiled to the outward eye. And this is important for us to understand. Some ministers teach that the five foolish virgins were outward sinners. And this isn't so. Is it? They wouldn't be virgins then. 
to the outward eye, the five foolish looked the same as the five wise. That's why Jesus said there were ten virgins. See? They attend church each Sabbath. They pay tithes and offerings. They help out in ministry. They proclaim the truth of the three angels' messages even, friends. They appear to have a pure faith. But as we read in 1 Samuel 16, 7, The Lord seeth not as man seeth, for man looketh on the outward appearance, but the Lord looketh on the heart. Let's go back to Christ's Object Lessons, page 412. The ten virgins are watching in the evening of this earth's history. Get that? All ten, right? They're watching in the evening of this earth's history. All claim to be Christians. There are ten professors of Christianity here. All have a call. All a name. A lamp. All profess to be doing God's service. All apparently wait for Christ's appearing. But five are unready. Five will be found surprised, dismayed, outside the banquet hall. That's a powerful quote. What is the real difference between them? What's the real difference? Who can tell me? What's the real difference between the five wise and the five foolish? They look the same. They have all the same things, but one has something the others don't. Well, oil. They don't have oil, right? Five have oil and five do not. Now what does the oil represent? How do we know that? Where does it say that? You're cheating. (laughs) 1 Samuel 16 verse 13 says, Then Samuel took the horn of oil and anointed him in the midst of his brethren, and the Spirit of the Lord came upon David from that day forward. We know in the study of the sanctuary and its services and and the implements that uh, the oil, the olive oil, is a symbol of the Holy Spirit. You can read in Zechariah 4 also as it describes oil as being a symbol of the Holy Spirit. And so the lamps are the Word of God and the oil is the Holy Spirit who by grace imparts the truth to the hearts of those who by faith act upon it and are made step by step into the image of Christ, being wise virgins, pure, having a pure faith. And so the wise virgins of the parable represent those Christians who understand, those Christians who who appreciate and avail themselves of the ministry of the Holy Spirit. As somebody mentioned, you know, you, you have tangents, you have people, we talked about how Satan deceives people. And we've got this Godhead movement who say they believe in the Holy Spirit, but friends, they really don't because they deny the third person of the Godhead. When you deny the third person of the Godhead, you're rejecting the oil. It's a scary thing. What happens when you reject the Holy Spirit? You'll reach a point where you've grieved Him away. And then 
That's the unpardonable sin, isn't it? It's important to understand. Do we want to have oil? First of all, we have lamps, don't we? The Word of God. We need to have the oil too, don't we? The wise virgins cooperate and they live the truth, not just profess to. And they have gained a sanctified character by cooperating with the Holy Spirit and putting away sin from their life. Now the five foolish virgins are not hypocrites. They're not hypocrites. Because you can see a hypocrite, can't you? Well, yeah, I mean, you detect a hypocrite. Somebody who professes one thing and does another. But they're not hypocrites, you see, because they're not open sinners. Now, they may be a hypocrite in God's eyes because He can read the heart. But we can't. They're not open sinners. Remember, they, they look the same as the wise virgins on the outside. To all appearances, you can't tell the difference between them. They are foolish in that they had not yielded themselves to the working of the Holy Spirit to prepare them for the bridegroom. Back to Christ Objects Lessons. Back up to page 411. The class represented by the foolish virgins are not hypocrites, she says. They have a regard for the truth. They have advocated the truth. I did a, a program yesterday we, in the studio. We talked about Zedekiah. You guys remember that? Zedekiah, king of Israel, last king before taken captive by Babylon, he would call Jeremiah in secretly, prophet of God, to know what God had to say, but then he would never, never take that counsel. They have a regard for the truth, these five foolish virgins. They have advocated the truth. They are attracted to those who believe the truth, she says. But they have not yielded themselves to the Holy Spirit's working. They have not fallen upon the rock, Christ Jesus, and permitted their old nature to be broken up. Thou almost persuadest me, Paul, to be a Christian. They are familiar with the theory of the truth, but the gospel has affected no real change in their lives. They appear to be virgins or pure, but they are still carnal and worldly at heart. And where does sin start? In the heart and the mind, doesn't it? So in this respect, they resemble the stony ground hearers and the man without a wedding garment. They are attracted by the gospel, but selfishness keeps the truth from taking deep root in their lives and bearing the fruit of a Christ-like character. Christ Objects Lessons, page 408. Without the Spirit of God, a knowledge of His Word is of no avail. Did you catch that? Because it's all knowledge. Now, knowledge is important, isn't it? Will knowledge save you? It could lead to that. She says, the theory of truth unaccompanied by the Holy Spirit cannot quicken the soul or sanctify the heart. One may be familiar with the commands and promises of the Bible, but unless the Spirit of God sets the truth home, the character will not be transformed. 
Without the enlightenment of the Spirit, men will not be able to distinguish truth from error, and they will fall under the masterful temptations of Satan. As you said, obedience is the fruit of faith. So we see that the church militant will have both wise and foolish virgins. It will have those who are converted and also those who are not thoroughly converted. The foolish virgins are not in open sin, friends. Well, they can get to that point. But they're not in open sin or they would be rebuked. They either repent or be disfellowshipped from the church. Let me ask you, how long will the foolish virgins remain in the church? Until the bridegroom comes. Isn't that what we're told in the parable? Or the close of human probation? When the church becomes the church triumphant. See, they'll be removed. Back to Christ's Object Lessons, page 412. It is in a crisis that character is revealed. When the earnest voice proclaimed at midnight, Behold, the bridegroom cometh, go ye out to meet him. And the sleeping virgins were roused from their slumbers. It was seen who had made preparation for the event. Both parties were taken unawares, but one was prepared for the emergency and the other was found without preparation. So now. What's that mean? So now. That means right now, in our time. A sudden and unlooked for calamity, something that brings the soul face to face with death, will show whether there is any real faith in the promises of God. It will show whether the soul is sustained by grace. The great final test comes at the close of human probation when it will be too late for the soul's need to be supplied. She says, there's a sudden and unlooked for calamity that will bring us face to face with death. Friends, are you being wise in preparing your character by cooperating with the Holy Spirit? Or are you foolish and believe that you have no need to prepare? You're rich and in need of nothing. Where have we heard that before? Increased with goods. Well, that's Laodiceans, isn't it? Let's go to Revelation 3. Verse 14. Is there... Can that be turned down? Yes. Thank you. Revelation 3, verse 14. And unto the angel of the church of the Laodiceans write, These things saith the Amen the faithful and true witness, the beginning of the creation of God. I know thy works, that thou art neither cold nor hot. I would thou wert cold or hot. So then because thou art lukewarm and neither cold nor hot, I will what? Spew thee out of my mouth. Vomit is what that means. Because thou sayest I am rich and increased with goods and have need of nothing and knowest not that thou art wretched and miserable and poor and blind and naked. I counsel thee to buy of me gold tried in the fire that thou mayest be rich, and white raiment that thou mayest be clothed, and that the shame of thy nakedness do not appear. And anoint thine eyes with eye salve that thou mayest see. 
as many as I love, I do what? I rebuke and chasten. Does anybody here like to be rebuked and chastened? I haven't met anybody yet who likes that. But is it necessary sometimes? Absolutely. Be zealous, therefore, and repent, our Lord says. This is a message from the faithful and true witness. Who is that? That's Jesus, isn't it? It's a message from Jesus to the church that was at Laodicea, but it is an applicable message to the church today, sad to say. That's our condition. We see a description here of a people likened to that of the foolish virgins. The foolish virgins were members of the church, so are the Laodiceans. The foolish virgins had the word of God, professed a pure faith, that they did a wonderful work for God, and decided that they needed no more oil. We don't need any oil. The Laodicean professes to be rich, increased with goods, and have need of nothing. No need for oil. (laughs) See? Notice this from the SDA Bible Commentary, Volume 7. Sister White says, Many are Laodiceans living in a spiritual self-deception. Is that something to be proud of? To be boastful of? They clothe themselves in the garments of their own righteousness, imagining themselves to be rich and increased with goods and in need of nothing when they need daily to learn of Jesus, His meekness and lowliness, else they find themselves bankrupt, their whole life being a lie. Is it worth it? Jesus said that He knows their works. And this is because he can see the heart. We see the outward appearance and look upon a Laodicean as someone who is pious and religious, just as the foolish virgins looked the same as the wise. We cannot discern a difference, for we cannot read the heart. Laodiceans are not open sinners, they sin in their heart. Back to the commentary. Now, White says the Laodicean message applies to all who profess to keep the law of God and yet are not doers of it. We are not to be selfish in anything. Every phase of the Christian life is to be a representation of the life of Christ. If it is not, we shall hear the terrible words, I know you not. So you see, friends, the The Laodicean is self-righteous and professes to keep the law of God. They attend church. They give tithes and offerings. They help in ministry. They use the Bible too. They're attracted to the truth. They believe the three angels' message is to be present truth. The Laodicean believes that they are in a right relationship with the Lord, but they are not completely converted. They are still carnally minded. They're still worldly at heart. They believe that they are hot But Jesus reads their heart and says that they are not hot nor cold. If they were hot, there would be no such message of repentance given to them for they are in the right relationship with God. Jesus says they're not cold either. If they were cold, they may be open to Jesus and be shown their true condition and need of Him. But Jesus says, He says they're lukewarm. They're not hot nor cold. They're satisfied, you see, with their condition. 
They're satisfied with it. And the wooing of the Holy Spirit has a tough time reaching their heart with the warning to repent and be changed because they're satisfied. From Councils to Writers and Editors, page 100. The message to the Laodicean church comes home to to those who do not apply it to themselves. They are neither cold nor hot, but lukewarm. If the warning by the true witness is not heeded, then they will be sealed in their condition, friends, and Jesus will spew them out of His mouth. Notice this, early writings, page 107. Many who profess to be looking for the speedy coming of Christ are becoming conformed to this world and seek more earnestly the applause of those around them than the approbation of God. They are cold and formal, like the nominal churches from which they but a short time since separated. The words addressed to the Laodicean church describe their present condition perfectly. They are neither cold nor hot, but lukewarm, unless they heed the counsel of the faithful and true witness and zealously repent and obtain gold tried in the fire, white raiment and ice sap, he will spew them out of his mouth. What does it mean to be spewed out of his mouth? Well, I mean in a spiritual sense. I know the word means vomit, but what is, what is the message? What does that mean? Testimonies for the Church, Volume 6, page 408. The figure of spewing out of his mouth means that he cannot offer up your prayers or your expressions of love to God. He cannot endorse your teaching of his word or your spiritual work in any wise. He cannot present your religious exercises with the request that grace be given you. As I said, friends, there are many today who boldly claim to be Laodiceans as if it's a great honor and privilege. And that's the art of deception at its greatest. To think that such a condition is in harmony with the will of God. Many Adventists think it's a great thing to be a member of the Laodicean church, but the prophet says that Jesus cannot offer offer up your prayers of love to God. He cannot endorse your teachings. He cannot endorse your spiritual work. And He cannot ask that grace be given to you. If you are in a fallen organization, you think God can do these things for you? Don't fool yourself. Oh, you'll go and you'll meet every Sabbath. You will kneel and you'll pray. But you're lukewarm. He can't endorse your teachings, your spiritual work, your prayers. That's not something to be proud of, friends. That Christ will spew you out of His mouth. Believe me, I I run into it quite a lot. We're the Laodicean church. And my heart just sinks and I'm like, wow, you don't even know what you're saying. Father, forgive them for they know not what they do. Pride is a character trait of the Laodicean for sure, isn't it? But I'll tell you, friends, I'll tell you this. I'm so happy that God does not give up on anyone. I praise God for that. He doesn't give up on foolish virgins and Laodiceans. 
It's encouraging to me that there's still hope for the foolish virgin and the Laodicean because they are among the, the influence of those who are wise virgins and hot Christians. There's hope for them if they will listen to the testimony of the true witness and repent. We read that in Revelation 3. Jesus is saying, Listen, be zealous therefore, repent. It was this from a Review and Herald article entitled The Obedient Approved of God, August 28, 1894. Quote, But the counsel of the true witness does not represent those who are lukewarm as in a hopeless case. There is yet a chance to remedy their state, and the Laodicean message is full of encouragement. For the backslidden church may yet buy the gold of faith and love, may yet have the white robe of the righteousness of Christ that the shame of their nakedness need not appear. Purity of heart, purity of motive may yet characterize those who are half-hearted and who are striving to serve God and mammon. They may yet wash their robes of character and make them white in the blood of the Lamb. Praise God. I'll tell you though, time is running out for all of us to work with Christ in the washing of our robes of character. Do you know the Laodicean message has been sounding for decades? And will soon be silenced as the seal of God will have been stamped upon the foreheads of the faithful and obedient. How long do the Laodiceans remain in the church? How long were the did the Foolish virgins remain in the church. Till the bridegroom cometh. Till the harvest, the close of human probation. Just as with the foolish virgins, for they are of the same mold. Selected Messages, Volume 2, page 69. There is in some of the members of the church pride, self-sufficiency, stubborn unbelief, and a refusing to yield their ideas, although evidence may be piled upon evidence, which makes the message to the Laodicean church applicable. But that will not blot out the church that it will not exist. Let both tares and wheat grow together until the harvest. Then it is the angels that do the work of separation. You read that? Why is this the case? Because, friends, the foolish virgins and Laodiceans are not unrepentant open sinners. For such would be seen by others and they would be removed from the church as well. They both profess righteousness, but they're not thoroughly converted and thus are still carnally minded. They will be separated by the angels. And beloved, let me tell you something. The three angels' messages are separating messages that do indeed separate the tares from the wheat. It's an end-time message just before Jesus comes. It's interesting, is it not, that in our last quote, the Laodicean condition is mentioned along with the wheat and the tares? That's because the tares and the Laodicean have the same character traits. Let's go to Matthew 13. And verse 24. Another parable put he forth unto them, saying, The kingdom of heaven is likened unto a man which sowed good seed in his field. But while men slept, his enemy came and sowed tares among the wheat and went his way. But when the blade was sprung up, 
and brought forth fruit. Then appeared the tares also. So the servants of the householder came and said unto him, Sir, didst not thou sow good seed in thy field? And from whence then it hath tares? When did they recognize that there were tares in the wheat? No, after it sprouted. You're right, it grew up. But brought forth fruit. Because a tear doesn't bring forth fruit. See? So they recognized, there's tares here. And so they asked him. And he said to them, An enemy hath done this. The servant said unto him, Wilt thou then that we go and gather them up? But he said, Nay. Lest while ye gather up the tares, ye root up also the wheat with them. Let both grow together until the harvest. And in the time of harvest, I'll say to the reapers, Gather ye together first the tares. The what? Who first? The tares. And bind them in bundles to burn them. They left them where they were, friends. And gather the wheat to my barn. So the tares are gathered and bundled right where they are. And the wheat of God are brought into His barn. And so we notice Jesus is again speaking about the kingdom of heaven. He's speaking about the church. And the disciples needed help to understand the parable. If we go down to verse 36. Then Jesus sent the multitude away and went into the house. And His disciples came unto Him saying, Declare unto us the parable of the terrors of the field. He answered and said unto them, He that soweth the good seed is the Son of Man. The field is the world. The good seed are the children of the kingdom, but the tares are the children of who? The wicked one. The enemy that sowed them is the devil. The harvest is the end of the world, and the reapers are the angels. As therefore the tares are gathered and burned in the fire, so shall it be in the end of this world. The Son of Man shall send forth His angels, and they shall gather out of His kingdom all things that offend and them which do iniquity, and shall cast them into a furnace of fire. There shall be wailing and gnashing of teeth. Then shall the righteous shine forth as the sun in the kingdom of their Father, who hath ears to hear, let him hear. Now friends, this story, like that of the foolish virgins and the Laodicean, also points out that not all of those who profess to accept the principles of the kingdom of heaven are what they may at first appear to be. <laughs> Judas was a lukewarm Christian. Such persons are not of Christ's planting. Their lives are not the product of the gospel seed. It's interesting that when the ten virgins fall asleep while awaiting the bridegroom, they run out of oil. Only the wise were prepared, weren't they? And brought extra. When the men sleep, the enemy sows tares. So the virgins are asleep. And while the men sleep, the enemy sows tares. Jesus tells us to watch and pray always and not to fall asleep at our post. Isn't that what He says? Isn't it interesting though? That all fall asleep. Jesus here is speaking about the church militant, and we find wheat and tares are within it. Uh, Christ's Object Lessons, page 70. The field, Christ said, is the world, but we must understand this as signifying the church of Christ in the world. The parable is a description of that which pertains to the kingdom of God, His work of salvation of men, and this work is accomplished through 
the church. Now, again, that that terror that's spoken of is probably the what you do any research, they call it the bearded darnel. It's a common Palestinian plant, it grows to be about two feet tall. And in its earlier stages, it is indistinguishable from wheat. Looks just like it. Only when the plant matures and the seeds of the darnel turn black is it easy to tell the difference. See? And these seeds, you know something else about it? Now, sometimes we, we don't appreciate the economy of the Jewish nation and, and being right there and understanding some of the little insights of this story. We just read a story based on the time we're living in. But the seeds of a tear are poisonous. And if eaten, they produce violent nausea, diarrhea, convulsions, and sometimes death. Jesus explained the terrors as being the children of the wicked one because they resemble him in character as yet unseen by the wheat. The wheat are the children of God, see. Christ's Object Lessons, page 70. Go back. The good seed represents those who are born of the word of God, the truth. The tares represent a class who are the fruit of or embodiment of error of false principles. And so for a time, the wheat cannot distinguish uh, any difference between themselves and a tear. The character of the two was not yet mature, and so it would be disastrous, you see, to attempt what the servants proposed, you know, separating them. It was not yet possible to gather up the tares without disturbing other wheat and preventing some of it from coming to maturity, see? Back to Christ Object Lessons, page 72. As the tares have their roots closely intertwined with those of the good grain, so false brethren in the church may be closely linked with true disciples. The real character of these pretended believers is not fully manifested. Remember, we, we learned that from uh, heaven. Remember that? The war in heaven. Angels didn't understand the true intentions. It took time. Were they to be separated from the church, she says, others might be caused to stumble, who but for this would have remained steadfast. So the tares look like wise virgins. They look like hot Christians, not Laodiceans. They profess a pure faith. They look forward to the return of Christ. They're not open sinners, as has been taught from many pulpits. Still taught. Well, there are big tares in the church. Have you ever heard that? Somebody is somebody's committing adultery openly and coming into the church. That's what Paul had to deal with at Corinth. Well, there'll be tares in the church. The minister is teaching full out error from the pulpit. Well, there'll be tares in the church. Ministers of God, not only teaching error from the pulpit, breaking the Sabbath. Oh, there'll be tares in the church. Have you ever heard such things? Notice this, Desire of Ages, page 656. It is true that open sin excludes the guilty. 
This is the whole this the Holy Spirit plainly teaches, 1 Corinthians 5:11. But beyond this, none are to pass judgment. God has not left it with men to say who shall present themselves on these occasions, for who can read the heart? Who can distinguish the tares from the wheat? Now, context is she's talking about communion. It is true that open sin excludes the guilty. This the Holy Spirit plainly teaches. But beyond this, none are to pass judgment. That tells us we are to pass judgment upon those who are openly sinning. Professing to be a member of God's church. You know, at times church members who think that certain other members should be removed from church membership for this or that reason, uh, other than open sin, I mean, they've approached me. And, and it was an appropriate time for me to share with them about the wheat and the tares. We can't read the heart. And we're not to judge anyone's motives as, as if we can. However, unrepentant open sinners are to be removed from the church as directed by Christ. Does that not make sense? If that isn't the case, there would be no reason to have three angels' messages to call people out of Babylon. Christ's Object Lessons, page 71. Christ has plainly taught that those who persist in open sin must be separated from the church. But He has not committed to us the work of judging character and motive. He knows our nature too well to entrust this work to us. I wouldn't want that work anyway, friends. Should we try to uproot from the church those whom we suppose to be spurious Christians, we should be sure to make mistakes. The tares and the wheat are to grow together until the harvest. She's not talking here about open sinners. She already said at the very beginning, they're to be removed from the church. And too many times I've heard ministers say that open sin must be tolerated in the church because the wheat and the tares grow together until the harvest. And friends, this false teaching is used to convince... Don't you see this? It's used to convince the righteous to stay with the fallen church. Because God will do the separating. Have you heard that? Oh, God will do the separating. It's true that just as with the foolish virgins and the lay of the sea, the tares remain in the church until the harvest, but the tares are not open sinners. Christ's Object Lessons, page 74. Sinners who make a pretension of piety mingle for a time with the true followers of Christ. And the semblance of Christianity is calculated to deceive many. But in the harvest of the world there will be no likeness between good and evil. Then those who have joined the church but who have not joined Christ will be manifest. Friends, what is it that the foolish virgins, the Laodiceans, and the tares have in common? Paul tells us the common denominator. 2 Timothy 3 and verse 5. Having a form of godliness but denying the power thereof. These are people who profess a pure faith. They profess to be rich in spiritual things and and the favorite of God. And they look like fruit-bearing plants, but are really carnally minded and worldly at heart. They have a form of godliness, but they deny the power of God. They deny the Holy Spirit to change their character into the express image of Christ. The wise virgin, the hot Christian, and the wheat 
I mean, they may have a suspicion about the foolish Laodicean tear, but we are to leave them alone, for we cannot judge the heart. Notice this from Fundamentals of Christian Education. Let everyone who is seeking to live a Christian life remember that the church militant is not the church triumphant. Those who are carnally minded will be found in the church. They are to be pitied more than blamed. The church is not to be judged as sustaining these characters, though they be found within their borders. Should the church expel them, the very ones who found fault with their presence there would blame the church for sending them adrift in the world. They would claim that they were treated unmercifully. It may be that in the church there are those who are cold, proud, haughty, and unchristian, but you need not associate with this class. There are many who are warm-hearted, who are self-denying, self-sacrificing, who would, were it required, lay down their lives to save souls. Jesus saw the bad and the good in church relationship and said, let both grow together until the harvest. None are under the necessity of becoming tares because every plant in the field is not wheat. If the truth were known, these complainers make their accusations in order to quiet a convicted, condemning conscience. Their own course of action is not wholly commendable. Even those who are striving for the mastery over the enemy have sometimes been wrong and done wrong. That's true, isn't it? Evil prevails over good when we do not trust wholly in Christ and abide in Him. Beloved, we may, we may have our suspicions about some members, but we are to do nothing about them for fear of uprooting some who are righteous. We're to keep our eyes upon Jesus, aren't we? And keep cooperating with the Holy Spirit in the sanctifying of our character and proclaiming loudly the three angels' messages to the world, pointing out sin and dealing with it in the church as it should be, calling it by its right name, removing it, as Christ has said. But we're not to do anything with those we may suspect to be tares. We're to love each other. You see, because a message is going to deal with that. The three angels' messages will do the separating. Those are the angels that do the separating. We're going to get into very hard times, friends. The terrors aren't going to be hanging in there forever. Those messages are going to separate them. No, friends, we're to love each as Christ would and be an example to others that Jesus dwells in our hearts. Amen? We're to pray for each other. The church militant will be composed, friends, of foolish virgins. It will be composed of Laodiceans. It will be composed of tares until the harvest. I'll close up with this. It's from Faith and Works, page 84. Let us consider our condition before God. Let us heed the counsel of the true witness. Let none of us be filled with prejudice, as were the Jews, that light may not come into our hearts. Let it not be necessary for Christ to say of us as He did of them, Ye will not come to Me that ye might have life. We need to heed the counsel of the true witness, each one of us, do we not? If we do not heed the testimony of the true witness, repent and be converted, then we are the foolish Laodicean tares that will not go into the marriage feast. And we will be spewed out and bound up for the lake of fire. 
Jesus said to the Laodiceans, He said, Behold, I stand at the door and knock. If any man hear my voice and open the door, I will come in to him and will sup with him and he with me. To him that overcometh will I grant to sit with me in my throne, even as I also overcame and am set down with my Father in his throne. And Jesus says, He he that hath an ear, let him hear what the Spirit saith unto the churches. Beloved, I hope that you're listening. I hope that you open that door. Let's pray. Father in heaven, we thank you so much, Lord, for your holy word. It clears up so many misunderstandings. It sets things straight when studied according to your principles. It gives us the true course that we need to the kingdom. And Father, we've learned that the foolish virgins, the Laodiceans and the tares, we've learned, Lord, that they're not open sinners. We've learned because of that that open sin needs to be dealt with in the church according to the principles that you've laid out. If they're unrepentant, they have to be separated. But we're not to, to worry about the tares, the foolish virgins, or the Laodiceans. That's not our job. We can't read the heart. So Father... I pray that as we study these things out for ourselves and we come to understand who and what the church really is and and these things help clear some misunderstandings up, that that will draw us closer together in unity of spirit, in unity of doctrine and truth. We know that you're preparing a church. You're preparing the church militant to become the church triumphant. We trust you, Lord. Please continue to bless us throughout this Sabbath day for the days ahead that we may be found to be the wheat of God. I pray this in Jesus' name.